Well, we um, are in our 12th week, if you can believe that, 12 weeks of this series to the ends of the earth where we're going through the entire book of Acts. And last week, we looked at chapters 6 and 7, and namely, we looked at the story and the message that Stephen gave to the Jewish officials. If you were here last week and you joined us, you remember that the story of Stephen, the reason for its inclusion in the book of Acts, isn't so that we can marvel and encourage at the, at the face of persecution and then ultimately death, which is incredible. But the reason that that whole situation is included in Acts is because of the message that Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin, to these Jewish officials. And and specifically, Stephen is pointing out to these Jewish officials and to us today that God is not constrained to human constructs and ideas and plans That similarly, we see God, he went from place to place as he saw fit all throughout uh, Jewish history. And how our church today can be seen as an idol. We can treat this place as an idol, thinking that it is only here that God can reveal himself and do amazing things. And what we find in the book of Acts, and that we're going to find even more today, is that Acts, this story is about how the church is supposed to be on mission. Mission meaning to go out. We are supposed to see opportunities beyond this place. I was talking to somebody the other day, and um, I, you know, I wish I would have given this illustration last week, but do you remember when we were on the playground when we were kids, and we were playing tag, and you'd have a base? You remember that? Where if you were at the base, you were safe? Did you guys ever play that way? That, that is how the church essentially needs to be looked at. Instead of this place where God's presence is only here, that God can only do things here, or when we talk about connecting with people that need Jesus, we can only do that here. Instead of thinking of this place like that, instead we need to treat this place as a home base. We can go and we can be encouraged and filled up and grow in our relationship with one another and with the Lord, but from here we then go. We go and we preach the gospel to those that desperately need to know the hope of Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to do whatever it takes because, as I mentioned last week, when we become comfortable, when the church becomes comfortable, we become complacent. And when the church becomes complacent, we become ineffective. And when a church ultimately becomes ineffective, it what? It dies. And we don't want that to happen here at North Haven. And because of that, we have to actually strive to be uncomfortable. And that's uncomfortable, isn't it? When I was um, a number of years ago, before I met my wife and before we started our family, actually before I even became a pastor, I worked for a year out in North Carolina and uh, loved it there. I was in the Piedmont and you would drive two and a half hours, you're at the ocean, drive two and a half hours, you're in the mountains. It was really cool. 
Uh, but I worked specifically, I've talked about this before, but I worked with uh, troubled teenage boys. Um, and we worked in a kind of a, is a Christian camping experience. It was an alternative to juvie, and um, these kids would go there and we would work with them. I saw um, amazing transformation in these kids. I experienced that in my own life. The story I'm about to share has nothing to do with that. All right, so, but while I was in North Carolina, while we were work, working there, what we would do is we'd spend five days out in the middle of the woods with these kids, living with these kids 24-7, and then we would go and hike out of the woods, and we'd stay in an actual house. It was called, we were uh, counselors, but we were called chiefs. So my name for a year was Chief Adam. If any of you call me that, I will not appreciate it. Anyway, so I was, uh, I, we would go and we'd hike out of the woods and we'd go stay in this house and for two days and then we would, after two days, we'd go and hike back into the woods. Well, one day we had to hike back into the woods, me and this other guy, um, one of the other uh, counselors, and um, it had just ice stormed. Now raise your hand if you've ever experienced a southern ice storm. And you know that if you have, those are on another level. Like, uh, we can get tons of snow here, yes, and we can experience ice, yes, but I have never experienced ice like I did in North Carolina because that's all it was. And it didn't matter where you stood, whether it was the road, whether it was the, the grass, uh, everything was like an ice rink. And, and there wasn't any snow to kind of give it that traction. So me and my friend, uh, we were walking to this, um, it was about maybe a three-mile hike that we'd have to get to get into the woods with these kids. And while we were doing that, we had to walk along this two-lane um, uh, county road first. For some reason, he was on uh, the other side. I don't remember how he got over there. But when we got to the place where we actually had to walk on a trail to get to where the kids were, um, he had to cross the road. Um, but you know how these county roads, you know, kind of have a little bit of a rise to it, right? He literally could not walk across the road to get to that top of that rise so that he could get to the other side. Every time that he would try, he would start sliding back. I mean, he would, he tried crawling, he would slide back, and I'm sitting there on the other side of the road like, I don't know what to do, pal. I mean, you got to figure this out. And he tried for probably about 10, 15 minutes, could not cross the other side. So I'm, I'm standing there and I'm thinking, okay, I, I got to figure out all right, I got an idea. All right, so I went to the side ear of the woods. I mean, we were in the woods, right? So there's tons of branches. So I grabbed the branch, and my, this is a two-lane road in the middle of the country, um, and this, my friend, could literally not get in the other side. So this is what I had to do. I had to lay on one side of the road like this, and I had to stretch out over the road so that he grabbed the branch just barely, and then I had to gently pull him over to the other side of the road so that he could cross the street. That's insane. But that's what, that's what we're looking at today. We have to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to connect with those that need to know Christ. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 here today. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to that. If not, um, sections of the uh, scripture will be on the screen as we get to them. 
And uh, as we're looking at chapter 8, we have to um, keep in mind the context of chapters 6 and 7. Do you remember, for instance, um, what happens at the end of chapter 7? What happens at the end of chapter 7? Go ahead and anybody... What was that? Stephen is martyred, yes. So Stephen gives this message to the Jewish officials, to the Sanhedrin, uh, basically condemning their idolatry uh, into believing that God was confined um, and that God wasn't in the business of actually going out. Um, He gave that message. And then, do you remember, Stephen had a vision And in that vision, he saw Jesus, and as he spoke about his vision um, in seeing Jesus, he put Jesus on the same level as as who? God. That's right. And that caused the Jewish officials to lose their minds, right? They uh, plugged their ears, and they closed their eyes, and they screamed at the top of their lungs, and eventually grabbed stones and started throwing them at Stephen. They laid their cloaks at the feet of who? Paul. Saul later to become Paul. And so there we have it, right? We have this moment, and this is the first recorded instance um, in uh, the book of Acts where we see someone martyred for uh, being a follower of Jesus. Um, And now we're in the second half of verse 1 in chapter 8, and we're going to go to verse 3 here first. So um, read with me. On that day, that same day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, who would become Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. All right. So right away we see that on the day that Stephen was killed for his confession of faith in the resurrected Jesus, on that very same day, this immense persecution broke out amongst Christians, amongst followers of Jesus. So much so, and it was so intense, that it caused followers of Jesus to then flee the city of Jerusalem. And they fled, they fled namely to where? We just read it. Judea and Samaria. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, let's look at that. They left Jerusalem where they had begun their uh, preaching of the resurrection of Jesus and saw thousands, literally thousands of people in a matter of months become saved. Uh, Persecution just exploded after the death of Stephen, which caused them to scatter to Judea and Samaria. Sound familiar? It should, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does Jesus say to his followers? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when you think about that moment where Jesus was talking to his followers, um, they were probably astonished and admittedly, at least I would have been, um, really scared out of their minds when Jesus ascended into heaven. I mean, here it is, this guy that you followed, you saw die, and now was rose from the dead, and he's leaving? I mean, and now it's up to me, it's up to us, to like proclaim this message and to do what we thought you were going to do? That's crazy. But in that moment when Jesus is giving them this directive, you know, even amidst their fear, they probably have, okay, yeah, all right, we're getting, given this, miss, this mission and we're going to see things click and fall into place and I don't know how this is all going to uh, correspond to Judea and Samaria, but I'm interested. They probably had no idea that the message of the gospel would go to Judea and Samaria because their lives were on the line. That probably wasn't part of the plan in their minds or part of the deal. But Jesus knew. In Acts 8, verse 4, it says that those who had been scattered throughout Judea and Samaria preached the word wherever they went. I think it's beautiful that um, it wasn't as if there's no mention that there was a huge meeting that was called amongst all the followers when great persecution broke out. Um, It wasn't as if everybody said, okay, let's gather together. Here's the plan. We're going to leave Jerusalem. We're going to go to Judea and Samaria. And by the way, wherever you go, you have to talk about Jesus. There was no mention of that. Instead, it was a given. Wherever they went, Wherever they landed, wherever they were scattered to, they told people about Jesus. Wherever and whenever they were, Jesus was on their minds, Jesus was on their hearts, and Jesus was being spoken through their words to people that desperately needed to know the Savior. Have you ever blown a dandelion? Right? When you blow that dandelion, you are scattering seeds, are you not? And each of those seeds, that's why, (laughs) that's why, uh, if if you have kids, you should never tell your kids to blow dandelions because you're going to pop up in your yard. Because wherever a seed falls, what happens? Another one grows. This is what a Jesus follower does. Wherever you go and wherever you are, you tell others about Jesus. It's plain and simple. It's God's plan that all of his children enter his kingdom, and he has given you and I the responsibility to be a part of that. Now, one of the followers who was scattered was a man by the name of Philip. In verse 5, it says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. <clears throat> now, Philip was, was an, uh, this isn't the Philip who was the apostle, one of the 12. Instead, this Philip was one of the seven 
along with Stephen, who was chosen to help with the administrative needs of the church. Now, Philip goes to Samaria, which is actually quite profound, because Samaritans had a real, real big issue with what other people group? Jews. We talked about that before. And here is then a, keep in mind, that all of these followers of Jesus who were scattered to Judea and Samaria, they were all Christian what? Jews. And here it is, Philip, a Christian Jew who has been, who has been raised to understand that the Samaritans are less than. And that the Samaritans have great deal of hostility towards Jewish people. Philip willingly goes there amidst persecution. Isn't that incredible? But he doesn't go there to uh, uh, receive some sort of uh, safety or uh, comfortability, a better life. He goes there to preach the gospel. And his ministry has profound effect on the people of Samaria, on the people in Samaria. It says that there was great joy in that area. Philip had a powerful ministry, but God wasn't done with him yet. We're going to fast forward to verse 26. Verse 26. And we're going to see then how God kind of does a, um, a course change in Philip's life. In verse 26, it says this, Now an angel of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Notice here that the Holy Spirit is involved at every turn. We're going to see that here in this, in this encounter that Philip has. And, and it's a, a, a great reminder, because you know we tend to uh, look at Uh, scripture through a certain um, looking glass. Whether we do this consciously or subconsciously, it's quite easy for us to look at scripture and to see somebody like Philip, to see somebody like Peter or Paul or Moses, and and to put them on pedestals. We put them on pedestals. And we, we kind of justify to ourselves that, that what they were called to, what they committed themselves to, is obvious because they were like these super Christians. So much so that they were put into the Bible, which must mean that they are way better than me. And so it becomes easier for us to justify not doing this or not going in this direction because we obviously aren't on the same level as a person like Philip. But that couldn't be further from the truth. The Holy Spirit doesn't just speak to the elite. Do you believe that? I hope you don't. The Holy Spirit speaks to everyone all the time, especially God's children. You see, when we become saved, we talk about this, we receive the Holy Spirit, we are then the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, the Holy Spirit is constantly engaging with us, constantly talking to us, constantly leading us. So the question isn't, 
does the Holy Spirit speak to us like he spoke to Philip? The question is, are we listening? So we go forward because we find that Philip listened in verse 27. So Philip started out. He followed the Holy Spirit's lead, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandike, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit, again, speaking to Philip like he does with you and me all the time, he told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, this is, a, this is an amazing en- encounter because um, this is the first time in the story of the church in Acts that we find um, that the, the gospel, the news of the resurrected Jesus, is limited to no one. Because up to this time, it had been limited to mainly those in Jerusalem. But now, not only is this outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but it's somebody from quite a ways away, a completely different culture, a different race. This, uh, this, this individual is from what is now known as the Sudan, so you can kind of get some geographical proximity and the extent of the travel that he had committed to to go to Jerusalem and now be on his way home. Another thing to point out is that, is that this, this Ethiopian, this, this individual, was, was a eunuch. And, and so we know what that, what that means. He was castrated, and that was a part of um, and his position. But that also meant that he was excluded even further. So not only was he literally not a Jew, not only was he not anywhere close to the area that Jews would reside but then he was, according to the law that the, uh, that the Jewish people followed, he was prohibited from entering what? The temple. According to Deuteronomy 23.1, that his condition made it so that he literally could not walk into the temple. I've talked about this before, about how the temple in Jerusalem had different levels. And basically... That first level was open to many, many people, but he was not permitted. But yet, the gospel of the resurrected Jesus is limited to no one. It's incredible. Now, there was every reason for Philip to uh, concede that there were just too many obstacles for him to do what, what he was directed to do by the Holy Spirit, but yet he persisted. In verses 30 through 33, it says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. And I led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Who, who is that referring to? 
Jesus. It's important here to note that Philip ran up to the chariot. I love that image. I love that image. It wasn't as if the Holy Spirit, it's not that Luke writes that the Holy Spirit directed Philip to, to go to this area so that he would meet with this uh, Ethiopian and that we would hear about this encounter. No, Luke makes specific mention that he ran up to the chariot. This chariot was presumably what? Moving. And, and even at a trot, a chariot moves faster than somebody standing still. And so not only did he have to run up to the chariot, but he had to stay with the chariot long enough to get it maybe to slow down or stop so that he could be invited to get inside. That's what the gospel means for you and me. I don't know about you, but I can get into the trap of thinking that somehow I'm going to have gospel encounters that are just going to fall into my lap. That I'm, I'm just going to be at the right place at the right time, and someone's going to come to me and make it easy for me to tell others about Jesus. But that's, that's not how this works. We have to overcome obstacles to tell others about Jesus. We actually have to exert some sort of intentionality that would put us into uncomfortable situations that we have to reach up to somebody, keep up with them, so that we can finally have that connection. I love that. I love that image. So, Philip gets into the chariot and he has the opportunity and the responsibility to be a witness of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And I love how, how Philip then helps us understand that as followers of Jesus, we are interpreters of the gospel. We are interpreters of God's word. We have to be. But here's the thing. Do you have to be a Bible scholar to share the good news of Jesus with another person? What's the answer to that question? Do you sometimes think that you need to be? Yes. All we need to know is the power the power of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus in our lives and in the potential in others' lives. We have to understand that it's God who changes hearts. It's not our intellect. It's not our wit. It's God. And if we simply present people with the truth, God will change lives. In verse 38, or I'm sorry, 34 through 36, and then into 38, we see the results of this interchange between Philip and the Ethiopian. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else, this passage in Isaiah? 
Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and then told him the good news of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now this is believer's baptism. Believer's baptism uh, is... Um, important. That's what we do here at North Haven. That is what the Bible teaches us. Basically, it's, it's this. Uh, when you become saved, when you are justified through this salvation, through the grace of Jesus Christ, when you are justified, we are commanded to respond by getting baptized. Getting baptized is this outward symbol of what God God has done inwardly through Jesus. And so baptism is meant to be a response, an obedient response, and a testimony to the rest of the world that, yeah, I'm sold out for him. Philip doesn't do anything particularly bright. He just obeys God. He goes where he's told, and the rest is laid out for him. We have to do whatever it takes. There was a gentleman um, uh, about six, seven years ago um, that went to the church that I was pastoring at and then um, moved out of state and um, got in trouble and then had to go to prison for uh, a couple of years. And I knew that this individual uh, didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and that he was in complete despair. We're going to call him Bob. And Bob was in complete despair. Hope was, was completely lost. And it would have been very easy, because he had family still in the area, it would have been very easy for me to say, well, I'll get him on the flip side. Somehow, some way, when he's out here in a couple of years, he'll come back to home, we'll find a way to connect, and, uh, or he'll come into my office and we'll talk about Jesus and everything will be as right as rain. But I knew, I knew that that's not what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do. Why? Because he was speaking to me. And so here I decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to this prison. I'm going to drive through states, multiple states. I'm going to go to this prison. I'm going to connect. So I had to go through all the red tape in order to get approved to be in this prison, which took time and effort, a lot of phone calls. Finally got that approval. I was going to make the hours upon hours and pause hours of uh, driving time uh, just to save you know, money. And, uh, and then I get a, a person in the church who says, hey, I fly small Cessnas. I'll fly you down. And I'm freaking out, but yet I say, okay, all right, we'll do that. So then I get in the small plane, and I fly all the way there, and, and then I go through the ring wall. I'm meeting with this, with this guy, telling him about Jesus, and the hope only be obtained through him for one hour. I pray with him. Get back on that plane, fly back here. And to this day, he has a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is saved for all of eternity. And he has a hope that never fades, will never diminish. 
But what about our neighbors? What about our, our co-workers? What about our family members? What about the, the, the waitress that is serving your table and it's just obvious that something's going on? What about, what about the mother, the single mom, who's in line in the grocery store and she's got three kids hanging off her? And she knows she's going home to no support, no encouragement, seemingly no way out. And you notice her? We have to do whatever it takes. Sharing the gospel requires being uncomfortable. It requires going out, running up to the chariot, and then keeping that pace until they're willing to stop and you can engage and simply know that Jesus has changed your life and he wants the same for others? Or are you all good knowing that you're good? I want to be on mission. I want this church to be on mission. I want us to expect opportunities, expect inconveniences, I want to have a listening heart and ear to the Holy Spirit and His leading whenever and however He leads and be used to see other lives changed for the hope of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the salvation that we have so freely been given. It cost so much. Yet it's given to us freely. Thank you. We have the knowledge of salvation. We know for firsthand account how that can literally save us for all of eternity. And we've then been given the opportunity nay, the responsibility to share the good news with others around us. But to not sit in our chairs and wait for those opportunities to fall in our lap. No, Lord, you give us examples like Philip so that we understand that the gospel is about being on mission. It's about move. To run up, to run alongside and then eventually be asked to enter in so that we can point people to Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you, and we pray all of this in your name and all God's people said, amen.